it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. And I want to tell you about a new CNBC podcast that will make you smarter by giving you context, color, and debate on the biggest stories in business news and politics. Squawk Pod from my friends at Squawk Box is available every morning after 10 a.m. I'm sharing a full episode with you now, but subscribe to Squawk Pod today. Booyah! Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, two CEO stories, CVS Health's leader Larry Merlot. We have an opportunity putting the consumer at the center of our strategy to transform the way healthcare is delivered in our country. And United Airlines announcing a change at the top. This was a clown car of ineptitude when Oscar Munoz took over. Hedge fund manager Kyle Bass says China doesn't need loans from the World Bank. The largest strategic military competitor in the world that the U.S. has, and we keep giving them billions of dollars. It's crazy. And artificial intelligence changing the workforce. We have to use machines and use algorithms, not only to learn, but to conduct business. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Thursday, December 5th, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is off today, but filling in, we have Tom Farley. He's the CEO of Farpoint Acquisition Group, former president of the NYSE and a CNBC contributor. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. First up today on the podcast, CVS Health. The drugstore giant is one year into its merger with Aetna, creating a $195 billion healthcare company. That's the eighth largest in the Fortune 500. Although it runs more than 9,000 stores, the new CVS Health is no longer just retail. It's also a pharmacy benefits manager, one of the nation's largest insurers, and runs a burgeoning chain of healthcare clinics. And as is so often the case with big companies, CVS has held talks with an activist investor. Starboard Value has taken a stake in the company. We'll talk about all that. Here's Larry Merlot, and yes, he started as a pharmacist, CEO of CVS Health. Larry, it's great to see you. Great to be here, Becky. So where are you just over a year in? You know what? It has been a terrific year. Uh, The integration of the two companies has gone very well. Uh, In many respects, we're ahead of schedule on many of the integration activities. And, you know, as a result, the synergy dollars associated with integration is ahead of plan. And at the same time, we've begun the transformation journey. We're bringing innovative products and services to market. Uh, The most visible sign of that is the health hubs. Uh, They've gotten off to a great start in Houston, and, you know, we've laid a solid foundation for growth in in the years to come. And uh, the credit for all this goes to our 300,000 colleagues. They're absolutely committed uh, to our vision, our strategy, and they're working hard to bring it to life. Where are you ahead of expectations in terms of the the combination factors? You know what? A lot of the – there were many, many synergy activities in terms of combining the companies uh, as it relates to – you know, the back office pharmacy uh, programs and, and, and priorities. And, you know, those are the things that have garnered uh, a lot of momentum and, and ahead, of, ahead of plan there. And, uh, again, we're excited with, uh, with what's happening with the health hubs and, and some of the other products that, uh, that we have in pilot and, uh, and the response that we're getting from our customers. The stock over the course of the year 
has, has not performed strongly, but you have picked up pretty sharply over the last nine months. And if we compare you to what's been happening with Walgreens shares, it's a much different story. They've been under quite a bit of pressure as there's been concerns about what's happening in the pharmacy. So it does look from that relative perspective like you guys made the right move by pivoting. Um, what have you heard from Starboard when they came in? What, what are the conversations that they've started? Well, you know, Becky, I'm, I'm not going to comment on, on market speculation. Uh, what I will say is we have a regular dialogue with all our investors. Uh, we certainly appreciate uh, their their input and uh, you know in their feedback and look I, I think investors see the momentum uh, in the business we've had three consecutive quarters where we've where we beat expectations and you know they're seeing tangible signs of our vision coming to life with things like the health hubs and uh, you know we had an investor day in early June we laid out uh, our strategy and more important the path forward over the next three years and uh, the stock's been up about 40% since that meeting. Larry, when I look at uh, your stock, you're, you're trading more, uh, with the Aetna Purchase, you're trading more like a United Healthcare, or you're trading as, a, as opposed to a, drug, a, a drugstore company. How should investors at home think about your company and how to value it? Well, you know, Tom, we are a healthcare company today. That journey began many years ago, you know, and we celebrated five years this past September of eliminating the sale of, of tobacco. I was there with you. I, I was re- there on I, the floor I, of the I, stock exchange. September was- 3rd, we rang the bell. It was, it was a great day and, and a day that made us all proud. It was fun. And, you know, we look back, you know, five years ago, it was absolutely the right decision. Uh, it's open doors for partnership, for acquisitions. Obviously, uh, the pinnacle of that is the Aetna acquisition. And uh, we are a healthcare company today, and, and we have an opportunity putting the consumer at the center of our strategy to transform the way healthcare is delivered in our country. CVS, uh, uh, CVS moved very quickly in terms of saying they weren't going to sell tobacco. And I remember at the time that was a little bit of a controversial move, although it has seemed to pay dividends for CVS. What do you think about what's happening with vaping right now? You know, Becky, it's, it's a great question. And I can remember the question we got back then was, well, will you carry the e-cigarettes? And, yeah, I can remember going into uh, a, a retail establishment that was selling the products, and, and I saw the device with the Hello Kitty logo and the bubblegum flavored liquid, and you know, it, it, it absolutely raised the question in terms of, well, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And five years later, we see what has happened. Uh, post the tobacco announcement, we started a campaign. We, our goal, working with community partners, be the first, create the first tobacco-free generation, you know, we've made a lot of progress. We have more than 200 college and university campuses that are tobacco-free today as a result of that program. But, you know, vaping is taking us backwards. You see some of the statistics. Uh, vaping's up more than 70% with school-age children. And I saw some stats recently that, you know, more than 70% of high school students that are vaping will turn to tobacco, you know, upon graduation. Uh, so we've got to reverse this trend. It's a, really, it's a tough one. You know why? Because as an anti-nanny stater, I, I'm just drawn to wanting to regulate vaping, and I, I feel like my like I, I'm going against. Yeah, you, what, you, this is different for you. This is it's totally you're different. You're on the same side. With it's also kids. That's what also I mean. Kids. Marketing it to kids, and it, I become a nanny stater. That's like a, that's a one exception to, and, to the rule. You and Ken Langone. Me and Bloomberg. I, I know, but you're right. It's like we. We're just getting everyone off the nicotine from the delivery system of the cigarette. And now we've we're found a new delivery system for nicotine, you know, that's flavored like cotton candy. It's just... Yeah, and Joe, the, the, the challenge and in, in the problem is, and, and we're seeing it play out, you know, with some of the tragedies that have been, you know, unfortunately well publicized, is, you know, we don't know the longitudinal effect 
you know, of these products, and, and you know, something has to be done. Larry, I, as an investor, I think about that move to eliminate tobacco products. I think it was courageous. I like the Aetna deal. The last six or nine months have been fabulous. Uh, but yet, the stock is down over a five-year period. So talk to us about the Amazon risk. Talk to us about the other risks of the business. And as an investor, as we think about your Wow, company, you right? say that like every sentence. That's amazing. What's that? As an investor. Yeah. It's weird. Anyway, okay, go on. Sorry. Where, 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 how should I think about the business for a year from now or two years from now? Well, you know, Tom, you, you think about with the customer, the consumer at the center of our strategy, you know, we spend a lot of time with our customers. Uh, you know, what are their needs? What are they frustrated with? How do we bring solutions to that? And maybe said another way, how do we uh, make sure we're not leaving any white space to be disrupted you know, by other forms of competition. And you've seen us do a number of things in terms of, uh, you know, the, the elements of how do we make, uh, you know, can, how do we redefine convenience? And you can think of some of the things that we're doing. Omnichannel has, you know, is, is a term that is probably overused to some degree. But, you know, in some respects, you know, we could look at our strategy and saying we're, we're really defining what omnichannel means for health, uh, you know, as an example. So we're pretty excited about, you know, the innovation that uh, we have underway. And, and, you know, as I compare where we are today to, you know, where we were five, seven, ten years ago, you know, innovation has now become part of our DNA. And, you know, that becomes the first part of it. And then strong execution is what brings all that to life. So, you know, we're, we're very confident. We're very excited about, you know, about the future. You know, one of the questions that often is asked is, you know, you, you do this big mega deal, you know, there's a lot of excitement, and one year later, you know, is that excitement still there? Because now you get a different view of, you know, of, of, of what's there, the complexity of, of what you're trying to do. And I can tell you that there's more excitement today than there was a year ago because of the opportunities in front of us. You bring up a good point, though. There are always going to be things that you hadn't considered once you actually are dealing with putting the two together. What's, what's been the thing that surprised you the most? You know what, Becky, the thing, I'll tell you the thing that I have been most pleased and proud of. We do an engagement survey, you know, with our colleagues every year. You know, we had a quarter of a million of our colleagues, you know, this past summer participate in the survey, and almost 90% of them, you know, understood our purpose, are committed, okay, to their role in helping people on their path to better health. It's a great foundation with which to work off of. The fact that we've got these engaged employees that you know, are proud of the journey that we're on and are committed to being you know, a part of the solution, doing their part in being part of that solution. You really was there do, anything you really that was do. harder than you thought? You know what, <laughs> Becky, it, it, there's, as you think about things that are really worth doing, you know, often they're not that easy, sure. okay? And, you know, but again, for the reason that I mentioned, we've got a, a very engaged workforce. Uh, we're working extremely well together as one organization. We're going to get it done. Larry, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to see you. Great to be here. Thanks. Here's a chance to remind you that Squawk Box is a three-hour morning show on CNBC. And here on Squawk Pod, we curate the best moments, conversation, and even breaking news. Like today, about a CEO shuffle. All right, we've got some breaking news right now. Let's get to Phil Lebeau. He joins us with more. Phil. Becky, we've got a leadership change coming at United Airlines. The company announcing that CEO Oscar Munoz 
Munoz, excuse me, will be turning over the job as chief executive officer effective in May. Munoz will be stepping down as CEO. He will be elevated to the position of executive chairman. Replacing Munoz, effective next May, President Scott Kirby. Kirby was brought over to United from American Airlines back in 2016 with the mandate to improve the performance of the airline to make it more profitable, particularly here in North America where it was trailing its competitors. Just a few minutes ago, both Munoz and Kirby sent out a video message announcing the transition to employees at United. Here's what they had to say. This is meant to be a very seamless transition until May of 2020. Uh, Scott and I will continue in our same roles, uh, doing the thing that you've seen us do before. Specifically, from my perspective, on our customer culture, and importantly for you and our employees. We have an incredibly strong position, an incredibly bright future ahead. And personally, I'm excited to spend even more time out with all of you, listening to you, sharing your enthusiasm for the future, uh, and together building the best airline in the history of aviation. If you are not familiar with the airline industry or with United Airlines, you might be saying, well, who is Scott Kirby and why is he going to become CEO starting next May? As I mentioned, Kirby was brought to United in 2016. But the backstory behind Kirby is that from 2006 to 2016, he was the top lieutenant for Doug Parker as they turned America West into U.S. Air, U.S. Air into American Airlines, and they really racked up impressive performance. That's why Munoz brought Kirby over in 2016. Since then, United's been on a pretty nice roll, especially here in the last couple of years. So again, Scott Kirby, the architect of the company's rebound, he will now move from president to CEO, effective next May. Oscar Munoz will move from CEO to executive chairman. The chairman of United's board of directors currently, Jane Garvey, she will be leaving the board in May. Guys, back to you. I guess that's the biggest question. I mean, Oscar Munoz has been on a, a bit of a roll. I guess why take this right. move now? Because he's only in five years. Well, look at it from the perspective of if you are the United Board of Directors, you've got Scott Kirby, who is, he's not the, the only reason that United's done well, but he's a big factor behind it. Rumors have been swirling in the airline industry that American Airlines, which has been struggling this year, the stock is down 26%, rumors have been swirling that perhaps American might be interested in bringing Scott Kirby back to American Airlines. Now, we put this question to the spokespeople at United, and they say, no, this was a case of the board and Oscar Munoz saying it's time for this transition to make it a smooth transition. This settles it for where Kirby goes. I mean, there's, there's, nothing, yeah, ab- there's nothing above this Phil. right yeah right right and 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 now look you know i'm i'm sure there will be people who will say oh look you know american didn't reach out to scott kirby we don't know that american was going to hire scott kirby the, the numbers speak for themselves over the last couple of years united is performing much better than it did in the past and if you are not american maybe you're a different airline at some point you might be saying who's the best person out there for us to straighten things out if we're not doing well Investors are going to look at it and they're going to say United's up 50% over the last two years and Americans down 50%. We, we like Oscar. What, why is he leaving? And I think an obvious question that's going to get asked is, is this health related? Uh, uh, and, I, no. and I mention that because uh, yeah. Oscar had a serious we, health scare a few right. years ago. We asked that question. It, it, it is not health related. Uh, I think to an extent Oscar Munoz will look at this transition as a chance to do something very few executives really get a chance to do. 
have a smooth transition, and perhaps take a bit of a victory lap. I mean, this company, guys, this was a clown car of ineptitude when Oscar Munoz took over. Remember when no he took kidding. over in 2015? No kidding. No, it was, it was yeah. trouble. If you fly I mean, out of Newark bad. all the time, you know this. It, well, look, I mean, they had a federal probe where they were trying to influence uh, the New York Port Authority by they had adding flights off, to a small city. They had ticked city. off uh, employees who made it miserable to fly. I mean, they, that, that, that airline oh, has changed awful. a lot in the last it's five awful. years. You had the Dr. Dow incident where he was dragged off of a plane. You had a, a flight attendant telling a passenger to put their dog up in Puppy an overhead gate. compartment. And the yeah. dog died. Ooh. I mean, it was one bad move after another. Mm. And they, for a long time, guys... They were known as a sleeping giant in the airline industry. They couldn't get. They, they were the gang that couldn't shoot straight, and so as a result, they trailed in profit but that's margins. That's what I mean. They I trailed mean, in customer service, etc. Munoz has hit his stride, it seems like to me, and you even see him goofing around in some of the latest things with the Star Wars things yeah, oh, that they're yeah. doing. Like he, he looks more comfortable. He looks more relaxed. It seems Far like everything's going his way. Yeah, there is no doubt that Oscar Munoz will go down. Uh, when he leaves as CEO, provided nothing weird happens over the next six months, he will go down as a fantastic CEO for United Airlines in the last couple of years. There's, look, in the beginning, all the way up through the, yeah, the, the Dr. Dow incident, been great. they, they okay. struggle. They struggle. Right. We but, didn't but understand. He, he righted the ship. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod. It makes no sense whatsoever uh, why the U.S. taxpayer should be backing subsidized, discounted rates to the Chinese government. The Ohio congressman pushing back on the World Bank and China's relationship. That's next. Roll Pro A. Up this is Squawk Sorry, push on Joe. Up on him, Q. Good morning and welcome back uh, to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kerner along with Becky Quick and Tom Farley, who's in for uh, Andrew this week. Tom is CEO of Farpoint Acquisition Group, former president of the NYSE and a CNBC a contributor. There's more friction brewing between the U.S. and China outside the trade war. The World Bank lends money to China as part of an economic development program. But that's designed for middle-income countries with a gross national income per person of just under $7,000. China's economic boom has created a per capita GNI greater than $9,000. Hedge fund manager Kyle Bass joined Squawk Box Wednesday to warn against this funding. Bass is an outspoken critic of China. Back in September in a CNBC appearance, he said that suspect investment standards made doing business between the U.S. and China dangerous. Imagine what kind of fraud is behind some of these companies. All of the U.S. money that goes into Chinese companies, it goes into companies that don't operate under a rule of law. Now Bass is speaking out in favor of efforts by U.S. congressmen to terminate China's candidacy for loans from the World Bank. Here's that conversation on Squawk Box. Explain a little bit about what, what, what's happening with this latest bill. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So there's some, something really interesting happening behind the scenes. The first question is, why on earth is the World Bank lending China 3 or $4 billion a year? You have the IDA, the International Development Authority. You have the, I, uh, the IDRC all lending money to China, uh, 3 to $4 billion a year. We're lending money to the country that's the second largest in the world, that's putting up quantum-based satellites. That's the largest consumer of Patek Philippe watches, Rolls-Royce, Chateau Lafitte, Rothschild. And the U.S. consumer, the United States taxpayer, is the guarantor of World Bank loans. That's how the World Bank has a AAA rating because of you and I, Becky. And that money is going to China. And the, the test that they have that's, that's a quantitative test is when your gross national income Gets, goes from 2500 to 6900 In there, you're eligible 
uh, uh, for for the IDRC loans. And once your once your national income per capita gra- gets above sixty nine hundred, you're supposed to graduate. Well, China's national income GNI per capita exceeded sixty nine hundred at the end of twenty fifteen, almost five years ago. Since then, they've borrowed eight billion dollars from the IDRC, and they haven't graduated yet because China has infiltrated the World Bank. They created positions within the World Bank. The managing director, the head of、uh, human relations, believe it or not, the head of ethics at the World Bank is a member of the Chinese Communist Party. And so, what's going on today, Becky? What's fascinating is, is since Congressman Gonzalez set this hearing on Thursday at 10 a.m. to discuss China's graduating in the World Bank and their, their basically their ability to to stop borrowing from the IDRC because their GNI per capita now is now 50 percent greater yeah, than the threshold. Yeah, it's 9,470. What China's doing on Thursday is they're, they're, the World Bank is actually having a meeting. That、uh, the funny thing is, is they're they're having a meeting to discuss the country partnership framework, the CPF. So, despite graduation, there's a 200-page document that has yet to be posted to their website that says China, the World Bank's going to lend to China a billion and a half dollars a year until the end of time. The they're going to force the IFC to lend to Chinese corporations a billion dollars a year until the end of time. This 200-page document hasn't been posted to the World Bank website. The World Bank website doesn't even have the meeting on Thursday, and guess what? The meeting on Thursday for the World Bank board to discuss the Chinese country partnership framework happens to be coincidentally at 10 a.m. at the exact same time that Congressman Gonzalez's、um, uh, hearing begins. It's, Kyle, it's not coincidental. Kyle, can I just interject? I'm curious, how do these views、uh, that, that that you have translate into your own investments?、Uh, you have. Uh, the well-known、uh, short yuan trade、uh, from fifteen,、uh, sixteen, seventeen. Are you still short the the yuan? Are you short、uh, individual companies or long individual companies as a result of these views? No, I'm not, and I'm not short any companies in China. I don't have any positions in China. You know, I've spent ten years of my life studying their banking system, their financial system, and now how they operate. I'm I'm looking at China's grand strategy, and I've spent a lot of my own capital and time dealing with some of the most ridiculous issues. That are in the marketplace. It is insane that U.S. taxpayers are backing the World Bank to lend money to a country again that's ad- advanced as China. The World Bank is supposed to be lending to、uh, poor nations that have aggrieved populations, that have vulnerable populations, and we're trying to help lift people up out of poverty. China's got more millionaires around the world than almost anyone, and they are a rabid consumer. Of many of the world's top brands, and as we all know,、uh, the largest strategic military competitor in the world that the U.S. has.、Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we keep giving them billions of dollars. It's hey, crazy. Kyle, I want to thank you for your time today. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Don't be a stranger,、yeah. Kyle. And today, Republican Congressman Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio joined us ahead of the hearing scheduled this afternoon. That's on his new bill called the Accountability for World Bank Loans to China Act. Let's talk about what you think is happening here. Why, why do you think that China is still continuing to get loans from the World Bank, even though it clearly doesn't meet the guidelines that have been laid out? Well, one of China's strategies, development goals, is to essentially influence and, in some ways, take over. Many of our international institutions,、uh, and I think they've done an incredible job at the World Bank. Frankly, what they have done internationally, not just in the U.S., is basically forced people to make a trade and say, if you want access to our markets, which are enormous,、uh, you have to play by our rules. And as part of that, 
that is staying in the World Bank as a member that can draw loans. Uh, to me, it makes no sense whatsoever uh, why the U.S. taxpayer should be backing subsidized, discounted rates to the Chinese government so that they can continue their development model, which is unbelievably oppressive, but also damaging to our economy and our country. How serious do you think the United States is, uh, your, your fellow lawmakers, in terms of pulling back, holding from, uh, pulling back support for the World Bank if this continues? Well, the one thing that I think is helpful is that we're getting strong leadership from the administration on the China issue specifically, and it has bipartisan support. You're even seeing Chuck Schumer support certain things. Um, so right now, we introduced our bill a couple weeks ago, uh, and we're just rounding up co-sponsors. I suspect that we'll be able to turn this into a bipartisan initiative. Um, you know, time will tell. Things are, are odd in Congress these days. But, uh, but having said that, I, I am optimistic uh, because I haven't heard much pushback at all um, on, on the fundamentals of the bill. And, and frankly, I think the World Bank issue is one that's just not on a lot of people's radar. It came onto my radar as I started researching ways inside of the Financial Services Committee to push back on Chinese influence. And this was the most obvious one and the most glaring hole uh, that we had in our system. And so we went for it. Uh, and I think others will, will jump on board as well. Congressman, I'm glad to hear you say that. I mean, this seems like the sort of bill that Elizabeth Warren and uh, President Trump could agree on. Are you, in your private conversations, optimistic that there will be that uh, bipartisan support? Because without that, it's, it's dead on arrival. Yeah, I am. Now, we did have a, an interesting fight in the committee uh, on the XM Bank uh, with respect to China, and, and I was a little disappointed that some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, weren't more... Uh, enthusiastic about putting some provisions in, in there. Um, but this is a different issue, uh, and I think this is a more obvious issue. And so um, by the World Bank's own rules, China was supposed to graduate years ago. There, I think the, the limit is if you're $6,900 in gross national income, China's near 10000 today. Um, there's no reason why they shouldn't graduate, uh, but they've influenced the World Bank to such a degree uh, from an HR standpoint, but also just uh, politically, um, that they haven't graduated. And so I think we need to make sure that they do. Here's what I don't understand. I mean, I mean this seems like such a clear-cut case. These are the rules. According to the rules, they shouldn't be getting these loans. How complicated is it to clear that up? And, and, and for those who are defending this, what, what is their argument? Well, so there's a second provision which says that uh, on top of the gross national income threshold, they have to have developed markets and, and sophisticated markets. And China's saying, hey, wait a minute, our, our markets aren't sophisticated enough. Uh, we can't graduate. Now, I think that's a horrible argument considering the fact that they have two different development banks that compete directly with the World Bank not to mention how developed their economy is. So they pass the, the, the data threshold, the 6,900 mark, but they also pass, in my estimation, on the, the sophistication mark. I think it's, it's laughable that they would try to make that argument, but they have support in the international community inside the World Bank for just that, and I think it's crazy. What, uh, what will it mean if they can no longer get loans? What will, that, well, look, what, think, what will the impact think, on China be? So money's fungible, right? And so if, if they can draw discounted rates from the World Bank, that means that they can deploy capital elsewhere. Uh, and so what this would do, I believe, is it would cut off uh, a particular capital source that, is, that they acquire at a discounted rate uh, and force them, in some ways, to, to play by, by the rules of the international order. In addition, they use their status at the World Bank uh, to influence the WTO. And so I think you'd have fall-on effects, not just at the World Bank, but also inside of the WTO, uh, to get them again to play by the rules that they've agreed to themselves, which they keep breaking. I want to buy some futures on you. Do you know about this guy? <laughs> yeah, he's a slot receiver. God he's almighty. a congressman. He's a, the smart. O the Ohio State University, number one, yeah, yeah. all Pac-10. <laughs> yeah. 
Indianapolis Colts. Big Ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Big Ten. Sorry. All Big Ten. Sorry. Yeah, no, I meant Big Ten. I, I was just looking at it. I am. And, and then you, you went, goes to the Patriots after the Colts. Yeah, what was Belichick like? Yeah. Well, not very nice because you weren't there very long. But he said, <laughs> he said, F this, I'm going to Stanford Business School. Which is yeah. And then you did that. So right? Bill Belichick was the first person I told I was retiring from the NFL. He cut me, uh, brought me in, and, and uh, I actually had a smile on my face. He said, why are you smiling? I said, honestly, Coach, I, I'm injured. I need, I'm, I'm going to go back to school. He said, where are you going? I said, Stanford State. It's a good school. <laughs> good Lord. And, 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 you know, I love talking sports on, on this show. And, and um, so did you see Ohio State last night, North Carolina, oh, yeah. 30 oh, points. Yeah. I had Unbelievable. Ohio, I had Ohio State. What? I did. I won $20 on a hot seat last night. Anyway, we got to go. Um, <laughs> Congressman, we'll have you on again. Thank you. The salt of the earth, Midwest, uh, Ohio. If you're not yes, from sir. Ohio, um, you have a lot to learn, I think. You have, you have some remedial work. Thank you. Next, robots. Are they coming to take our jobs away? The founder of a firm that educates workers on artificial intelligence says maybe. In order to uh, ethically and constructively use machines and use machine learning, we better learn the technology. Squawk Pod, we'll be right back. Finally today, robots. By 2022, 54% of all employees will need reskilling or significant retraining just to do their jobs. That's according to the World Economic Forum. So many companies are investing in educating their workforce on these job skills, things like cloud computing, web development, and it's not just in Silicon Valley. Amazon is retraining 100,000 employees across fulfillment centers and stores and IT paths. Kmart is training its workforce in the cloud. McDonald's is testing AI in the drive-thru. Today, we heard from the founder of one company capitalizing on the need for education. Here's Becky Quick. All right, Jobs Friday is tomorrow, and the numbers are expected to show unemployment keeping steady at a healthy rate. But more and more, new tech like AI is disrupting industries and the workforce. So how can companies stay competitive and keep up? Our next guest says that the answer is simple, by learning. Joining us right now is Amory Sastry. She is the founder and CEO of Amicide. And Amory, thanks for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, tell people what Amicide is. Amicide is an artificial intelligence software company. We provide learning ecosystems for universities and business to help people upskill and stay current. Why, why do we need that right now? We need it constantly. As you know, we're in Industry 4.0. Uh, late 1700s, we had farm to factory, then electrification a century later, then uh, about a century later, we had calculators, computers. Now, things talk to things. Goods and services overlap. Uh, there's no such thing as having a job where there's not some kind of technology or some kind of service involved. We do hear all the time about how companies are having a very difficult time finding workers who are trained to do the jobs that they need done. So how would some of these classes actually help them? How, how, do, you, how do you do it? Not surprising that they're finding difficulty finding workers who can do it. The technology is out there. Uh, the, the challenge is finding people who can execute on it. And these are things that people aren't learning in school. Uh, the technology is moving so fast that people are learning on the job. So the answer, of course, is to train your people. The companies that are doing well, the innovators, are actually making an investment in their people so they don't churn the workforce. Churning the workforce is extremely expensive. The cost of replacing an employee is about a third of their salary. Can what? you take us down to an individual example of a university, for example? And what, 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 what is your software doing? What, what, how is it teaching? Absolutely. 
So as a software company, we provide a platform and a portal for our partners and customers. Uh, students, learners are given login credentials, and then they see a complete dashboard of what they're supposed to learn. They engage with other people, and the AI does a lot of the administrative work. So in a traditional uh, classroom course, the professor, the most expensive worker at the university, is actually doing the administrative work. Imagine if, I don't know how you consume music, maybe Spotify or Pandora or iTunes. Imagine if a human being were actually following you around, picking your music and say, here, try this. It's insane, right? So with our platform, we use machine learning, natural language processing to serve up materials that are relevant to augment the fundamentals in the course, keeping every single educational experience fresh Is every this, single time. Would this bring down college costs, theoretically? Absolutely. Oh. It's, it's one of the reasons I started the company. College debt, as you know, is $1.52 trillion. Mm -hmm. Operationally efficient. Uh, operationally efficient to use AI and machine learning. Right now, having expensive knowledge workers do administrative work in teaching is really driving up the cost of education. Meaning that these professors would be able to teach more classes instead of teaching a couple of classes a semester, they'd be able to teach more? And more importantly, engage with learners. What people really want is to engage with other people and learn from them. If you ask millennials what they want, numbers one, two, and three are typically, I want to learn more on the job, uh, I want to engage with management more, and I want to feel part of a community and believe in my mission. I spoke to a university president who told me that key to surviving as a university is remote learning. Correct. Uh, so I imagine you have a lot of competition, is that right? Uh, I hope so. There need to be several multi-billion dollar companies in this space immediately. Uh, we are uh, actually at a pivot point uh, for the economy. We're training people in the fundamentals. Uh, in college, and I think the American higher education system does a great job of that. The challenge in Industry 4.0 is that the skills has to be continuous. The skills uh, on take has to be continuous. So, Anne-Marie, you mentioned took 100 years for this, 100 years for that. What's it coming down? It's going to come down to about 20 years when, this, get, when this gets rolling. Correct. When, when, do you believe in the singularity? Do you believe in things like Kurzweil? Do you believe that when, when machines know a billion times as much as we know, we have no idea what the future holds. I know this. In order to uh, ethically and constructively yeah. use machines yeah. and use machine learning, we'd better learn the technology, and we'd better engage that yeah. technology in our own learning. Do you think they're going to need us around? <laughs> You're laughing. Acres? I mean, that's the iron. That's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I do. I watch the, the show, so I do. I mean, that's the whole... <laughs> machines have a very hard time with humor, so... Right. <laughs> Absolutely. What do they need us for? They, we, they have to feed us. We, have, you know, we produce waste. I mean, we're, we're no good to them, eventually. Oh, no, 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 no. Every, every one of these junctures that our species have seen, yeah. we actually end up being more creative. Until and the singularity. Until the singularity where we don't know what's coming. And we better, we better think about it. We don't know how creative we can be. They might one be ambivalent is, towards us. They may like us, or they may just get rid of us. Have you Joe seen Terminator? Joe, you're very worried about things. Let me, t let me tell you. In, That's, we in, have to worry. I'm going to follow the stock market. We, we have to use machines okay. and use algorithms, not only to learn, but to conduct business. All right. We've Emory, thank be you careful. very much for coming. Thank you so thank much. You. You, missed, uh, you missed 2001. Uh, <laughs> the pod bay doors. Ow. <clears throat> I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. That's the show for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Jobs Friday, we'll find out how many jobs the U.S. economy created or lost in the last month, as well as the latest unemployment number. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. 
I've become a nanny state. And then Bloomberg. To get the smartest takes and news analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod. If you like what you hear, please rate and review. That helps other listeners find us. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. 